Our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may, we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they, war, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, I ask right now that through the light of the gospel in your word that you would open our eyes. I ask that you would encourage those who are depressed. I pray that you would rebuke those who are proud. I pray that you would let us all leave fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I pray that we would leave singing his praises today. And I ask that you would do this work as we listen to you through your word. I ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. We have right now a a candle burning that reminds us of the light of Jesus that was anticipated in the Old Testament. Sometimes I think we forget how long a span of time it took for God's plan to unfold. Literally thousands of years between the history that's recorded in Genesis and the birth of Jesus Christ. So as the people in Jesus' day, thinking of Mary and thinking of Zechariah, thinking of Elizabeth, thinking of John the Baptist and all that we've seen in Luke leading up to Christ, all of them were looking back to promises that had been given thousands of years before they lived. And so this morning, sometimes we come to the scriptures and we think, oh, this was so long ago. It was so long ago. And because of that, it may seem unreal. And because of that, you may be tempted to not believe what's there. But if their faith saw promises fulfilled after thousands of years in their own time, my prayer is that your heart and my heart today would be encouraged to trust the promises of God that we see in Scripture. Specifically, Isaiah that Christy just read looked forward to a time of peace when swords would be beat into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, Isaiah says, nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Think about that for a second. We have schools devoted to training military persons in how to wage war. And that is unfortunately necessary because of our broken world. But there's going to come a day when it won't be necessary. No one will have to become an expert in warfare. Jesus will rule in peace. And Isaiah says specifically, O house of Jacob, 
Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And this morning, my prayer is that God will shine that light through the scriptures on the person of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I love about this season that I think is really good is that during Christmas, you can hear some of the best songs everywhere. Even non-Christians will sing amazing Christian songs at this time of year. And you hear just great things about Christ. So for example, Joy to the World is a song that you hear everywhere. And it celebrates how Jesus comes as our king. And in his kingdom, the song says, he makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. There's an acknowledgement that this world is broken. But the song says that in the coming of Christ and in the reign of Christ, everywhere where there's a curse, his blessings will overflow. He will never run out. There will be an abundance and the curse will be undone. Joy to the world. So, O Holy Night is is another song you hear this time of year. You hear people with great voices sing it with incredible passion and it'll bring tears to your eyes. And there's that beautiful line. It says, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Both of those songs are acknowledging how dark our world currently is. And they are looking back to the hope that Christ brought and forward to his future reign. When all of the things that we currently experience, all the things that break our hearts will find a perfect and a just solution through Jesus Christ. We celebrate that in this dark world, God in the person of Jesus Christ has already shown the light of salvation by grace through faith in his death on our behalf and his resurrection that conquered the grave. And today, we are going to hear from the Gospel of Luke, how Jesus described his own mission and ministry. And we'll see the beginning of his ministry. And my prayer is that the light of Jesus would shine through God's word this morning, and together, you and I would worship him. And so if, as you hear me preach, something strikes you in your heart, and you just want to say, amen, that is true. That's something I love about Jesus. Feel free to do that. You can worship as you listen, and I would encourage you to do that. This morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And I want to encourage you to open a Bible or use your phone. Look with the text while I go through it, because I believe you will get more out of it as you see what the Scripture says. The things that I say are ultimately unimportant unless they reflect what God has said in His Word. And so I want to encourage you to see it for yourself. And before I go to to the heart of my message Look with me at Luke chapter four, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, because these verses form a sort of transition, and you find Luke does this throughout his gospel. He'll sort of wrap one story up, and before he begins the next one, he gives you a little bit of a way to relate the two. And so there's a small transition here, and I don't want to miss it. These verses are important. So look with me at verse 14. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee... And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now you remember 
if you were here last week, we saw Jesus overcome Satan. I said the temptation of Christ is not recorded so that you and I can copy some strategies from Jesus and learn how to resist temptation ourselves. You and I have already fallen and failed. We have this recorded to show that we have a Savior who is victorious. That our victory comes by looking to Jesus in faith. And, and yes, we can follow his example, but that's not what saves us. What saves us is trusting what Jesus did for us. So when it says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, he'd been fasting for 40 days, he'd been experiencing intense trials and temptations, doing war with Satan. And when he returns, he returns in the power of the Spirit. He's not exhausted or depleted. He is ready for the ministry that God has called him to. And really... You can trace the ministry of Jesus back to his baptism. And even before that, Luke stresses the power of the Holy Spirit throughout his entire book. But you see, Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is declared to be God's son. He conquers Satan in the desert. And then that same Holy Spirit who filled him at his baptism, the same spirit that led him into the desert to overcome Satan, that same spirit empowers his teaching ministry. And the text says that he taught in synagogues all throughout Galilee. Now I want to take for a second, I, I don't want to take for granted, as I read this this week, I thought, you know, I'm a little fuzzy on what a synagogue actually would have been like. And so I want to paint this picture for you so, so the scriptures become a little bit more real and you think about what Jesus is doing. The funny thing about synagogues is you do not read about them at all in the Old Testament. They already exist when the New Testament starts, but God never said, you shall set up synagogues throughout your towns. There's nothing like that. So where did they come from? What are they? What what do we see Jesus doing here? Well, what happened is, as Israel and Judah rebelled, God brought his judgment down on the people of Israel and Judah, and the temple was destroyed. And so all of the commandments that they'd received from God about bringing sacrifices and bringing offerings and worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem, they could not do that anymore because there was no place to make sacrifices. And yet they still wanted to rest in the promises of God. They still wanted to know the law and they still wanted to rest in the promises that the prophets had given them. And so in Babylonian exile, when they're carried off from their home, hundreds of miles to a foreign city, what they begin doing is they begin meeting in individual dwellings. And you'd have a handful of people coming together to read the scriptures and to talk about what they meant. You may not have had a priest there. You really would have only had people who wanted to know the word of God. And so they would read a little bit and they would talk about it. And out of that tradition they began to build small little buildings. And it would have been a room that's not incredibly unlike this one. This would have been large. Most of them were smaller than this. But they would have had benches around the perimeter. They would have sat down to hear the word of God. They actually would have had a small little raised platform so the person who read the scripture would stand up and read from a platform. And they would read something from the first five books of the Old Testament, the law, the books of Moses, So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would have read that because that was God's covenant with his people. Those were where he made his promises and he instructed them how to live. And then they would have read something from the prophets, something from someone like Isaiah, which is what Jesus reads in our text this morning. And after they read, 
they would sit down and someone would begin to instruct and teach. And they would not only have a little time of teaching, but they would discuss and they would want to know what the scriptures meant for them as people living in exile. And as the people came back into the land, communities all over Israel, and not only Israel, but all over the ancient world, built these small little buildings where the word of God was kept in a special little box so that it was dry, so that it was safe. And people gathered, usually on Sabbath, but not only on Sabbath, to hear the word of God and to hear it taught and to learn it so that they could obey it because their hope was that God would bless them again, that he would keep all of the promises that he had made to his people. And so when Jesus begins his ministry, one of the things I think it's so important to recognize that I forget is that Jesus is a teacher. If you love Jesus and you want to be like him, you ought to learn not just your favorite passages in the scripture, not just things from the New Testament, but you ought to learn the Old Testament that he would have taught, the scriptures that he was devoted to. The text says that he taught in synagogues all around the Galilean region, which meant he would have gone to different ones and different places. And this is one of the things that it's kind of strange, but also kind of amazing, is that you didn't need to be someone that the people knew in order to teach in a synagogue. So in our church, somebody walks in and says, I have something that I want to show you in the scriptures, and I need to speak to the whole church. I'd say, that sounds amazing. Why don't we meet sometime this week, and you and I can sit down and talk, and we'll see. Because chances are, he might be nuts. But in a synagogue setting, it was common for people to gather together and they welcomed people that were unknown. So when Jesus goes from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, this isn't completely unheard of. But what sets him apart is he is teaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's teaching in such a way that people begin to recognize that God is doing something. It says he is glorified by all And he is glorified as he is showing people what God has said he will do in the scriptures. So what you find is that the Son of God is devoted to the Word of God. He makes it the main feature of his ministry. He heals, he works miracles, but that's not primarily what he did. The main thing that he did was he taught the scriptures, he taught the Old Testament. And he is holding up the promises of God. And as he does that, he makes some stunning claims. So I have three points this morning out of that context as Jesus is going around and teaching. And the first is, we want to hear what Jesus says about his own mission. So we're going to look at Jesus' mission in verses 16 through 21. Follow along with me as I read. Scripture says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty 
those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The stunning thing about what Jesus is doing is even early in his ministry, he is saying, these promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled in me. Jesus does not point people inward to themselves. He doesn't say, you just need to believe in yourself. Claim the promise as God's child. He he doesn't say any of that. He says, he is the one to set the oppressed at liberty. You don't find freedom in yourself. You find freedom in looking to Christ Jesus. Some have looked at this passage and others like it because it talks about poverty and it talks about proclaiming liberty to the captives and those who are oppressed. Some have looked at it and claimed that the Christian message is about lifting the poor from poverty and seeking justice for the oppressed. I mentioned in the first service, there's a guy who's real prominent in, in American Baptist churches named Tony Campalo. Tony Campalo wrote a book called Wake Up America, and in that he endorsed wholeheartedly a kind of liberation theology where people embraced revolution and said that Jesus is with them in their revolution as they tried to throw off the rich who were oppressing the poor. That's not what Jesus is doing. And I want to show you that clearly from the scriptures. Some have responded to that kind of thinking, that kind of liberation theology by saying, no, what Jesus is doing is purely spiritual. We need to be right with God and we as the church should not be too worried about the political. Well, frankly, I think that perspective is also partly wrong. The reality is more complicated. Luke does have literal poor people and literal blind people in mind in his gospel. And you know that's true because Jesus goes and literally heals the blind. He does open blind eyes. But, but, if you remember the beginning of Luke's gospel, as he talks about the light that is coming in Christ... The primary tone of Luke's gospel is that our worst oppression, our bondage, our worst deformities are spiritual. We are in bondage primarily to our sin. The Bible always connects our suffering with sin. People in captivity, in chains, I just mentioned the Babylonian captivity a moment ago. They were sent literally into captivity by God for breaking his covenant. That captivity was a direct result and consequence of their sin. You cannot draw a straight line between someone's suffering and someone else's sin. You you can't always do that. It's not always that simple. But you can always say that suffering is a result of sin. Maybe not in an obvious way, but the Bible shows that our world is broken because of disobedience. And when it says that Jesus comes to bring us good news to the poor when he proclaims liberty to the captives, 
He comes as someone who is first bearing the sin of the world. And so he sets us free by removing the sin that keeps us in bondage. He is our spiritual savior. And you can see Luke's point with a lot of clarity if you just back up a little bit from the passage we're looking at today and look at the context. Our deepest bondage, a bondage that both the rich and the poor alike share, is to sin which leads to death. And so right before Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, what has he done? He has gone to the desert and defeated Satan. He can proclaim liberty and freedom to the poor because he just defeated the devil that has been enslaving them to their sin. Right after this passage, in verses 31 through 37, he's going to cast a demon out of another person. And so you find right before and right after this message that he preaches, he is showing he is the Savior that leads us out of sin and bondage and death. So the first way that Jesus saves us is through freeing us from our sin. Luke is showing us that he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And one day, like we sing about, one day in his name all oppression will cease. And right now, I believe the church, if we love the Lord, we ought to work to end oppression. But we should never, never lose sight of the fact that our first bondage is to sin. It's to sin more than it's to a broken and corrupt system. It's to sin more than it is to a world that really does oppress minorities, that really does oppress the poor. But we don't ever want to help someone for the short span of their life and then leave them to an eternity apart from God because we've neglected the gospel. It's not one or the other. We lead with the gospel and then we want to see people helped and served in ways that meet their needs. The Bible teaches that we... We show our love in practical ways with food, with clothing. And we do that. We do that as this church. But I want to make sure that we lead with the gospel. That's the first and most important way that we set people free. is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someday Jesus will make all things new. But first, we look to him to free us from our own sin. What you see, though, is that just like in our own day, not only are people confused about who Jesus is, right from the beginning of his ministry, people didn't want to recognize what Jesus was saying and believe what he said. So my second point this morning is Jesus' mistaken identity, that people did not believe him when he claimed that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. So notice verse 22, how the people in Nazareth reacted to his message. Verse 22 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Sometimes it's better to have a bad reaction than a half-hearted good reaction. It seems like These people, they they thought they knew Jesus. And in a way, they, they had a sort of in with him because he grew up in their town. But they are blind to who he really is, and they don't actually believe what he says. They have the worst kind of unbelief. 
Because their familiarity with Christ has left them blind to what he has said. So they smile and nod as as they hear the word of God preached. And then they dismiss the message and assume it's for other people, not for them. And then they ask him for special favors. Jesus says, I came to set you free. And they say, really? Didn't you just grow up down the street from us? Weren't you the little kid that that used to play in the street? But can you really do a miracle? Can we see you do something? That's what they ask. Their expectations of Jesus are way too low. Luke has shown over and over again that Jesus is the Son of God. He is born of a virgin. Angels declare him to be the Son of God, the Most High. He is baptized, and the Father from heaven announces, This is my beloved Son. And when Satan attacks Jesus, twice he calls into question that Son. He says, If you are the Son of God, Luke has shown again and again Jesus' sonship is the central issue here. But when Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he says, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. I am the one who is to come that's preaching this good news that will deliver you. When he says, I am the person, they say, isn't this the son of Joseph? Like, could this really be true? The people from Nazareth just want to see just a kid from down the street. They don't want to recognize what Jesus has said. And it's so critical. Don't miss this. I think Jesus, in some sense, would have understood it was hard to believe that a person, a real person, would be fulfilling these promises. But he expects that they will believe him because he has shown it in the word of God. This is something that you and I need to appreciate too. That we don't dismiss the word of God the same way they did. He's not not giving them some sort of resume and said, look, I can do these things. I'm the Messiah. He's saying, believe the word of God. If you believe the scriptures, you will know who I am. But the people of Nazareth heard the scriptures and didn't want to believe them. And so Jesus issues a warning to him. This is my final point for this morning. Look at verses 23 through 30. Jesus has no patience with their sort of, oh, isn't this cute? It's little Joseph's kid. Look what he says. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, but none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian And when they heard these things in the synagogue, they were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Think for a moment about what just happened. Jesus is so perceptive. He has heard people say, oh, wow. He said such gracious things. He has heard them marvel and be amazed at his teaching, but he knows their hearts and he exposes them. He, he, he says, you know, physician, heal yourself, which means something like this. 
You think that you're going to come and bring freedom and light to Nazareth? Well, first show us. Bring freedom and light to yourself. They're saying that, that he needs it as much as they do. And they're saying that they want some proof. They want some evidence that he can really do this. That's why he says, you want me to do miracles here like you heard I did in other towns surrounding this town. But Jesus' expectation is they ought to believe the word of God. They shouldn't need that. He shouldn't have to show off for them. They ought to take the word of God seriously. And what Jesus does is he reminds them of a time when Israel was blind and unbelieving. They had the word of God and prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And the nation dismissed the word of God. They suffered the judgment of God and the blessings of God went to unbelievers outside of Israel rather than to the people of Israel. Naaman is not a believing man. He goes to the prophet on the basis of a little girl who believes. He experiences the blessings of God, not because of his own faith. He experiences the blessing of God in part because Israel is disobedient. And Jesus' point is clear. If the people of Nazareth do not believe on the basis of God's word, they will experience judgment and the blessings will go somewhere else. Luke is showing really in miniature what's about to happen in the entire gospel. Jesus is going to continue to preach and teach and eventually the people are going to reject him. They're going to crucify him. And then the message of the good news of the gospel is going to go elsewhere. And I would say to you and I this morning, this is a message that we desperately need to hear. We need to come to reckon with who Jesus really is. And I'll be real honest with you, I have grown up in the church. I am someone who is familiar with Jesus because from the time that I was old enough to talk, I can remember little Sunday school stories about little miracles. And so for me, Jesus seems very familiar. In a way, I feel like he grew up in my hometown. But I don't have a special claim on who he is. I can't treat him as if he owes me anything. I have to make sure that I recognize his mission and his person and who he is. I think First Baptist Church of Holly, this is a message that our church needs. We are a church that has been around for a long time. And we feel like maybe we own Jesus. That he ought to do us special favors. We've seen God work in other churches around us. And that's actually a good thing. And sometimes we feel like, why don't you do for our church what you've done for other churches, God? That's putting the cart before the horse. We come to Jesus first for our own sins to be forgiven. We come to Jesus not so that he can push our agenda, but so that we follow his agenda. That's the order it has to be in. Paul warns very clearly in 2 Timothy 3.5, he says, There are people who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. You know, all those people in Nazareth, they were in the synagogue. They wanted to know the scriptures. They were good church people, if you will. But they denied the power of God. They didn't believe that he was actually doing what the scriptures said he would do. And I want to say to you and to my own heart this morning, we need to recognize that God really will do the things he has said in the scriptures. 
And as much as we might want to see him do some things in our lives and in our church and in our world, we need to trust his agenda over our own, and we need to worship him with humility, confessing our sins and resting and relying on who he is. I want our faith in our church to be full of the Spirit and power. I don't ever want to be stuck in a sense of tradition that kind of smiles and says, oh, look, you know, my kid's a sheep this year, and isn't that special because I was a sheep when I was a little kid. You know, that's all right. But if we deny the power of God and lose sight of the gospel that we exist to proclaim, we're going to die. We need to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and keep him at the center of our lives and at the center of our church. And so this morning, I would urge you to trust him completely. You may have known him your whole life, but trust him completely for the things that scare you right now. And I want to urge you, if you don't know him, to recognize that unless you trust him, you will face the same sort of judgment that he warned the Nazarenes about. I want to urge you to trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, that he died for you and rose from the dead. This is the message that gives us hope. This is the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what we want to shine as a church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would let this light be bright in each of us. Father, let us never lose hope, but let us rest in the promises of your word. And may we faithfully hold out the glory of Jesus everywhere we go. We pray that you bless us this Christmas season, that we would see friends and family and neighbors come to know Christ. Give us opportunities to show the hope that we have. Forgive us for when we treat you too familiarly, when we feel like you owe us something. And Lord, lead us in the hope that your word promises. And I pray that you would do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.